Section 7 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The Bachelor Abroad By this time the club was in a reduced condition, not only as to members but as to finances. We were now only nine, and the drain on the assurance money was very great. We felt that if any more of us married we should die. An extraordinary general meeting was called for the first of April. The extraordinary thing about it was that it answered. The first idea hit upon was Henry Robinson's. It was to graft our insurance system on to a popular penny paper. We immediately went to the editor of the Silly Snippets, who lived in the square, and told him that we were willing to become nine annual subscribers and transfer to him our reserve fund in exchange for back numbers, if he would insure us against matrimony, as he insured his other readers against death. He pointed out that he did not insure them against death, but only against accidental death. He was willing to accept the risks of accidental matrimony, if any of us was found married with a copy of silly snippets in his pocket, he would plank down the money. But if it could be shown to be a case of marriage of malice prepense, well, he kindly offered to see us condemned antecedently. He proceeded to complain that his readers were a most ungrateful lot, who were hardly worth wasting scissors and paste upon. He said that they had a most unpleasant habit of going and getting killed in percentages that flew in the face of all statistics. I said that the frequency of cases of sudden death while reading silly snippets was quite easy to understand. We then left. We heard afterwards that he had looked upon our visit as an attempted all-fool's day hoax. The editor's refusal to take the risks of deliberate matrimony naturally damped our spirits. His fear that we should marry communicated itself to us, and we were sad. Henry Robinson was especially doleful at the failure of his idea— he had a good position in a bank and was so supposed to divide the financial genius of the club with Moses Fitzwilliams. We returned to Leicester Square and sat smoking and thinking deeply. The extraordinary general meeting was resumed. What made matters worse was that no new applicants now stepped forward to fill the gaps in our ranks as they used to do in the early days of the club. We did not wonder at this. The developed stringency of our conditions and the uncertainty of receiving the minimum of white balls naturally disheartened any who might have offered themselves for election. Still, their subscriptions would have been welcome. McGillicuddy was the first to stop thinking. By the way, lads, he said, and his dropping into his vernacular showed how deeply the simple old Scotsman was agitated by the peril to his club. No, say dowry. We will pay out not mere siller to a departed bachelor till he has been married twa years. We take over a little trouble to verify the records o'er the members' marriages. We see the registrar's certificate, very true, but we can wreck weel that clerks will sign marriage certificates recklessly for half a croon. Gentlemen, said McGillicuddy, blowing his nose impressively with his picturesque pocket handkerchief. We maun hand a post-nuptial examination in spare for ourselves, before we part with the bobbies and tomb of the exchequer. I shall be the coroner and you the jury. Gentlemen, if we conduct the inquest by legal methods, we maun do it slowly. Here, here. We couldna do it under twa years. Cheers. Twa years is no owner lang to sit upon a renegade. Loud cheers, during which the honourable old gentleman resumed his seat, 
flopping down as vigorously as if the renegade were already upon it. It was universally felt that McGillicuddy had saved the club, and we competed eagerly for the honor of supplying him with whiskey. In his anxiety to avoid invidious distinctions, the good old Scotsman submitted to taking a wee drappy from each of us. He drank Irish. He knew how the other sword was made. Thinking it over in calmer moments since, I have got hopelessly muddled to understand how staving the difficulty off for two years could be of any use. But then Scotsmen always have a talent for finance. In two years anything may happen. To shift the burden off the shoulders of today is not that the whole principle of modern business and modern politics. Tomorrow can take care of itself. It will shift the burden onto the shoulders of the day after tomorrow. There was a Chancellor of the Exchequer wasted in McGillicuddy. We had hardly concluded the formal passage of the statesmanlike motion seconded by our venerable president when we heard a commotion in the smoking-room, and, opening the door, we saw a red-faced woman. We knew she was a woman because she wore no gloves, quarrelling with the waiters. "'How dare you insult an honest woman as earns her bread by washing and doing for gentlemen, you pair of good-for-nothing shirt-fronts?' "'Hey, my sonsy lass, what ails ye?' said McGillicuddy in his broadest scotch. He generally adopted that after copious Irish. "'I have come with a telegraph for Mr. Henry Robinson. It's very important, I know, cause I opened it, knowing it was very important, and so I took the trouble to bring it myself as I laid to go this way. But them tailors' dummies was both snoring around when I came, and when I woke em up they asked me if I was a married woman.' I says, what's that to them? And then they says, unless I was married, I couldn't come in. As if I wasn't married in Bow Church five years come next Whitenside. And my certificate is framed in the parlor next to the memorial card for my poor sweet William who flourishes in heaven, a twelve-month come next quarter day, little knowing the cowardly aspirations that would be cast on one who— Dry up, said Henry Robinson, blushing violently and pushing his way to the front. "'Yes, dry up your tears, my good woman,' said Joseph Fogson, M.D., B.S.C., who had a soft heart and could not bear to see even a fly weep. Robinson's blushing face turned white as he read that telegram. He put his hand to his heart, and the pink paper fluttered slowly downwards. I put out a sympathetic hand to arrest its threatened collision with the floor, and in doing so could not help reading the message.' Come at once, Albert Gate, gold discovered. You must leave England immediately. Rose. Thank you, thank you, Paul, said Robinson, clutching the telegram feverishly. Uh, good night, boys. Important business. Keep my fire up, Mrs. Twiddle. I shall want some hot coffee about eleven. And with that he was off. We looked at one another blankly. My heart was beating wildly, but I said nothing to the club. Why should I betray the poor young fellow yet? Shocked as I was beyond measure by the awful revelation latent in that simple telegram, all my sympathy was still with the unhappy Robinson. After all, he might be innocent. Rose might not be his wife, after all, but only an accomplice in the robbery. It is so easy to misjudge our fellow creatures. Not till I had ascertained beyond all shadow of a doubt that he was guilty would I denounce him to the club. Then and then only would I brand him before the eyes of his fellows as a married man. I allowed a decent interval of five minutes to elapse. Then I said I had an important appointment to attend. 
I flew to the Albert Gate in an omnibus and walked up and down in the cold for an hour, disguised in a beard which I always kept in my pocket in case I should be asked to play in charades at evening parties. Robinson did not come, though every now and then I saw someone that looked like Rose. At first I waited patiently, because I surmised that Robinson had taken a cab and would be on presently. But as the minutes wore on without any signs of him, I began to be very uneasy about him. Robinson was a very stumpy young man, somewhere between thirty-one and thirty-three. The bank he was in was Murdoch Brothers, and was understood to enjoy the confidence of whoever ran the concern. Murdoch Brothers, of course, were dead, poor fellows, but all men may be brothers if they can afford the shares. Murdoch Brothers had ceased to be men. They were a house, and Robinson was in it. He had a salary of three hundred a year, which would have sufficed for his wants if he had not contracted the incurable habit of trying to get his plays produced. There was no harm in writing plays, but it is expensive trying to get them produced. It is a habit that grows on one. Now at least I know by what means he had been enabled to indulge in it so long. I do not know why Henry Robinson wrote plays. The only reason I can divine for it is that his name was Robinson and he thought Robinson was as good as Jones. Nobody but myself in the club knew that Robinson tried to get plays produced, though the way he spent his money in strand taverns on supers and disengaged tragedians might have opened the eyes of the blindest. Nobody but myself knew even the amount of his salary. I'm afraid there is very little mutual sympathy even between bachelors. Thus much I had known about Robinson before, but now a new and lurid light was shed upon his existence. The confidence he had enjoyed at his bank he had betrayed. True, it was a small matter, but a scrap of paper shows which way the wind lies. How could I hope that he had been faithful to the higher confidence he had enjoyed at his club? With distracted brain and restless umbrella I tramped up and down, blowing my fingers and peering eagerly into the darkness. If Rose was at the rendezvous, she was as disappointed as I, for Henry Robinson was nowhere to be seen. Perhaps the news of the discovery of the gold had been too much for his weak nerves, shattered by a steady course of trying to get his plays produced. Perhaps he had taken flight for the continent at once, leaving Rose to shift for herself. The clock struck ten. With a heavy heart I shaved off my beard, put it in my pocket, and returned to my chambers. I lit my pipe and settled myself in my rocking-chair before a roaring fire, but I could not rest. My heart was heavy with foreboding and aching with sympathy. The wind began to wail outside like a lost bachelor. I got up, walked up and down, threw myself on the rug, sat down again, deposited my legs on the mantelpiece. All in vain. There was something tugging at my breast, urging me not to sit supine while Robinson was in danger. It was an indefinable feeling, something like a St. Bernard dog, and it tugged on me in dumb, piteous insistence. Ah, on, towards Robinson's lodgings. It was eleven o'clock. Robinson would be having that hot coffee. I knew Mrs. Twinkle's coffee. She was not one of those rare souls who have risen to the secret of coffee. Still, bad as it might be, Robinson would be up and drinking that coffee now. Why should I not share it with his other troubles? Yes, I would no longer hesitate. I dismissed the tug and ran the rest of the way to Robinson's diggings. 
The wind was almost cutting now. The stars were still hidden. I should have been quite cold if I had not run. At the door I paused. Suppose his instructions to Mrs. Twiddle had been only a blind. Suppose knowing that she had read the telegram, he had given them only to show he did not intend immediate flight. But no, the odds were he was at home, packing up his belongings and swallowing the hot coffee before taking the night mail. If so, my visit might not strike him as opportune. However, it was too late to draw back now, and I was about to perform my peculiar rat-tat on the knocker when it struck me. I should be surer of a welcome if he fancied it was the neglected rose come to reprove him. I therefore simulated the knock of an irate but cautious female, allowing as well as I could for the fact that her Christian name was Rose. I had not long to wait, though my heart compressed twice as many beats as usual into that short minute. I heard Robinson's shuffling step up the passage. He lived on the ground floor. As he opened the door, there was a careworn, anxious look upon his face, but the moment he caught sight of me, an expression of relief took its place, and his eyes lit up in welcome. "'Come in, Paul, old man,' he said warmly. My dodge had succeeded. He was under the joyous reaction from the anticipated scene with Rose. Congratulating myself on my knowledge of human nature, I followed him to his sitting-room. "'Sit down by the fire, old fellow,' he said and have a cup of coffee. It's nice and hot. It may have been hot, but it wasn't nice, if past brews were to be relied upon. However, I accepted a cup and began to spill it stealthily into the ashes. The room was indeed in a litter. All the signs I had anticipated were present in abundance. A large traveling case was yawning in the middle of the room. The articles of necessity or virtue lay promiscuously around. A pile of manuscripts tottered uneasily in a corner. Robinson himself walked about the room, neither tottering nor uneasily. His unperturbed air, as if there were nothing surprising in being surprised in preparations to fly the country, convinced me that he had mistaken his vocation. It was not that of a playwright nor a defalcating clerk. Henry Robinson was a born actor. "'You're the very fellow I wanted to see,' he said with an admirable assumption of candor. I was thinking of writing for you tomorrow. I shall be too frightfully busy to call on anybody. Oh, indeed, said I with an equal assumption of ease. Anything up? Rather. Don't you see what a mess I'm in? The fact is, I want you to break it to McGillicuddy and say good-bye for me to the fellows. Break it to McGillicuddy as he said those fateful words which I had heard so often, my hand shook so violently that the cup fell from my hand. It did not break as it would have done in one of Robinson's plays, and he picked it up and refilled it to the brim, without noticing the spoilt dramatic effect. As I had spilled at least half of the stuff before this, I could not curse my awkwardness sufficiently, especially as I had to do it all internally. "'Don't be so cut up about it, old fellow,' said Robinson." as a tear came or was pumped up into his eye. It's the best thing that could happen to me. Ah, uh, they all say that, I could not help observing. But I thought you liked the club too well to give it up. Of course, I shall miss it awfully. Still, there are compensations. You see, I can't afford to throw away this chance. I could not quite get the hang of the thing yet, but it was evidently a case of the most flagrant kind. Money? I inquired curtly. 
eight hundred a year i whistled a broad talker as mcgillicuddy would have said verily a vile world well of course it won't go so very much further than my present income big as it sounds that is self-evident especially as the years roll on and you increase and multiply but what does rose as her name slipped out i bit my careless lips in vexation rose he repeated i knew he would want to know how i had learned her christian name and it now dawned upon me that in any case i had hardly the right to call her by it rose he went on he thinks it's a splendid thing for me and rightly counts on my eternal gratitude he counts on your eternal gratitude i gasped well after all mr rose is the bank manager and as all the say he promised me long ago that if there was a new opening for a branch bank i should go out and establish it and it seems he's heard the first news of a new gold field in south america and there's going to be a big rush there and i'm to be on the spot to snap up all the clientele first it'll be no end of fun that wire i had from him tonight was about it he handed the damnable scrap of paper to me i took it and perused it with a show of interest it cost me all my strength not to crush it between my fingers as though it were of wax i've just come back from rosa's house he went on unconscious of the tempest that raged within my breast awfully swell place at albert gate don't you know number thirty-two wish i had his income by jove yes and now you will marry i said bitterly he laughed a frank almost boyish laugh no fear of that paul my plays are my wife and children if they are not my bread and butter down among the diggers i shall get lovely new materials besides the money to pay for matinees when i return reassure yourself old man there's as much chance of my turning traitor on our common principles as of a manager putting a play of mine in evening bills and you propose to still continue a member of the bachelors club i do not propose to still continue a member of the bachelors club he replied making a note of the mot on the summit of the tottering manuscripts good bit of repartee that yes dear boy you don't get rid of henry robinson as quickly as you can mention his brother jack's name to show you how earnest i am before i leave england which i have to do by the end of the week i intend to pay two years subscription in advance it'll be at least two years before i can revisit the old country cheer up paul why there's not a sounder bachelor in the club than henry robinson always excepting you my dear misogynist don't be so sure i could not help saying i knew how the stoutest of us may fail suddenly disappearing down one of the trap-doors of that terrible matrimonial bridge in addison's wonderful allegory on the vision of marriage he laughed a bright defiant laugh you'll be very lonely in the new world i said away from all your old companions and comforts among rough diggers with bowie-knives and six-shooters that you won't care to mix yourself up with when night falls on the sierras you'll be glum and miserable there'll be no bachelor's club to go to reason will not feast and soul will not flow there will be no music halls and you will not find nature's stars a sufficient substitute your characters would but you wouldn't yourself now frankly old man you wouldn't would you henry hesitated a moment for like all the bachelors i do not include myself for obvious reasons 
he was keenly conscientious. Then he laughed heartily once more, his stumpy figure shaking with merriment. "'Don't be an ass!' he gasped. "'That's what I'm afraid you'll be,' I said gloomily. "'You'll get dull and depressed and in a low state of health, and you'll go and commit matrimony.' He laughed again, but this time there was a nervous tremor in his voice as if he had begun to realize the danger I foresaw so vividly. "'What it takes two to make a marriage,' he said more seriously. "'Where's the other party to come from? Why, there's no creature on earth so rare at the diggings as a woman. That's the only place in this wide world where she's worth her weight in gold.' If man is but dust, then woman is gold dust at the diggings. A petticoat is as rare as a plesiosaurus. As for a baby, it's so scarce that they use it for Salvation Army and Art Department. And it moralizes and refines a whole camp of dregs of humanity. I shook my head obstinately. Though I could not meet his arguments, I was not convinced by them. The very rarity of woman will enhance her value in your eyes, I said. Read the political economy books. If there is an insufficient supply of woman, she will become dearer to you. He began to look troubled. And then there is the voyage, I went on remorselessly. Look what temptations you will be having on that voyage. There is sure to be a beautiful young girl on board with a history, or an Italian grammar, or something of that sort, which she will draw you into conversation about. She will swing in a hammock on the deck with a straw hat, a muslin dress, and a bewitching smile, and she will look up artlessly into your face as you bend over her, and she will wonder, opening her blue eyes to their widest, how you manage to know everything about currents and compasses and other things you are ashamed to confess your ignorance of, and then at night, especially if it is rough, she will tumble about the deck to look at the Southern Cross or the Aurora Borealis or things of that kind, and she will catch hold of your shoulder with her dainty hand while you slander the Pleiades and take away the character of the great bear. After that the ship will be wrecked, who knows, and then you will be saved. The thought was too much for me. I broke down. I buried my face in my hands and groaned aloud. Recovering myself, I went on. You will be saved, and she— you two alone, you'll be tossed about in a small boat in the South Seas, where there will be nothing to eat, but you'll have to take it out in sunsets. She will still look charming, and will do everything in faultless taste. Sea sickness will have no power over either. You will divide the time between looking into each other's eyes and admiring the sky and the seascape and the lovely effects when you are tossed fathoms high. By this means you will escape running into a reef, as you would do if you tried to steer, and the boat will ultimately ground upon the beach of a desert island, where you will find one white, hairy inhabitant, an old gentleman who has been marooned half a century by Spanish pirates, who has lived there ever since, forgotten by the world which flattered him in the days of his prosperity, and living on the charity of his relatives, the monkeys. He will have approximated to the ape himself by this time, the sight of you will bring back some glimmering recollection of his former state. He will remember that he used to be a priest. Simeon as he is, you will not dream of doubting his words. You and your fair companion will now feel that you can be married. The thought of living in that isle in divided misery all your lives, the unspoken dread that had hung over you both like a dark cloud, 
will be dispelled in an instant. You will fall upon each other's necks for the first time and weep. In one of his lucid intervals a priest will marry you, and in one of your insane intervals you will be married by the priest, while the bachelor's club is re-echoing with light-hearted merriment, little dreaming of the blow in store. Down in that distant southern isle a man in whom it is so trusted as to be willing to take two years' subscriptions from him in advance will be trampling upon his pledges, deserting his principles, and exhibiting his unexampled dishonor to the pure round-eyed gaze of a tropical honeymoon. I looked up. I saw that Robinson was as pale as a ghost. I also saw another thing. In my distraction I had forgotten that odious coffee. My cup was too full. I pressed Henry's hand convulsively, seized my umbrella, and hurried from the room, as midnight pealed successively from six of the neighboring steeples. Summoned by special telegraphic whip from me, the bachelor's club, minus McGillicuddy, who was too sacred for everyday use, called in a body on Robinson the first thing next morning, to the disgust of Mrs. Twinkle. We found him calm and his luggage collected. He wasn't going for three days yet, but he said he liked to be packed up in good time. He told us that he was glad we had come, because he had been thinking over what I had said the night before, and he now fully felt the force of it. He had quite underrated the temptation to marry when away from the healthy contagion of the choice spirits, using the phrase in both its senses, of the bachelor's club and solitary amid the burning or snow-capped Sierras. He didn't know which was the right adjective. Nor had he hitherto done sufficient justice to the ocean steamer as a marriage trap. But the danger had only braced his nerves to sterner resistance. My fellows all applauded to the echo and the annoyance of Mrs. Twiddle. I alone was still sceptical. "'Will you bind yourself by an oath not to get married during the two years you are abroad?' I asked maliciously. "'Certainly,' he said without the slightest hesitation. "'Will you bind yourself not to get married while abroad, even though you remain away longer than you bargain for? Five years, ten years, twenty years, forever?' "'Certainly,' he repeated firmly. For myself I do not need this oath, but if it will make your minds easier, I am ready to take it. They all jumped at the idea, and we bound him by a fearful oath. I still shudder at the remembrance of it. It would almost have turned my beard gray if I had been wearing it at the time. Think of all the oaths which the uninitiated fancy the freemen have to take. Think of all the most ghastly and gruesome oaths of the morbidity of Poe or De Quincey could devise, and you'll have some faint idea of the sort of oath which Robinson took without flinching, though the set rigidity of his muscles and the whiteness of his cheek showed he was not unconscious of the strength of his language. None of us would doubt Robinson's merest word. Even I believed in him since the rosy light thrown upon his supposed crime. Had he merely affirmed it would have been enough, and yet there was nothing to be lost by being on the safe side. When the oath had been administered, a solemn hush fell on the room. Its awful sanctity and fearsomeness lay upon the untidy chamber like a heavy pall. We felt stifling. It is as if a horde of weird and mocking demons we had raised from hell had their hands upon our throats. We gave one last look at Robinson's white face. Then we turned and fled into the fresh air of the Bloomsbury morning, 
It was indeed a last look. None of us ever saw Robinson again. I received a letter ten days or so after this gruesome scene, bearing the postmark of Lisbon. I uttered a cry of joy. The writing was Robinson's. During all the interval I had been in a ferment of sympathy about him. He had left his chambers on the morning of the oath and had not returned since. All my proffered sympathy at Murdoch Brothers was met with chilling agnosticism. I did not know the day he left England. I did not know by what ship he sailed. I was denied the consolation of waving my best handkerchief at him as he faded away into the great waters. With fluttering heart I tore open the envelope. A piece of cardboard fell out, but I did not stop to pick it up. The letter read as follows. The Occident, Eight Bells. Dear Paul, just a line to inform you that I am married. You are right. The temptations to marry abroad would be too great. Since you put the thought into my head, it has never gone out again. Taking that frightful oath made it worse. After it was done, I began to think how dreadful a sacrilege it would be if I were to desecrate it down in those lonely Sierras or bending over that siren in the hammock. To break that oath would not be perjury. Perjury is too mild a word for it. It would be blasphemy beyond the dreams of atheism. The more I thought about the danger of violating my oath, the more intense the danger grew. I cursed myself for having put myself within the possibility of trampling on such an oath. And yet I felt I should do it as inevitably as the moth flies to the chandelier. I was looking down a frightful abyss, and I knew I should get giddy and crash down its devilish depths. The thought was too horrible for words. Was there no way of escape? Yes one and only. I had sworn not to get married abroad. If I could find someone to be married to before I left England, the fearful peril and temptation would be lifted from my soul. Time pressed. The vessel sailed in three days. I took out a special license, proposed, was married, and am now sailing with my bride for a honeymoon in the Sierras. Ever yours and hers, Henry Robinson. P.S. Under the circumstances, the club will excuse my not forwarding those two years' subscriptions. Instead, I shall claim my assurance money at the end of the two years, under the new rules. The letter fell from my nerveless grasp. I picked it up, and with it the piece of cardboard. It was a photograph sandwich. I extracted the picture from between the cardboards. It was a portrait of a middle-aged but not unprepossessing lady, Across the foot ran the inscription, Inez Robinson. Through my tears I recognized the face. It was that of Inez Staunton, the well-known editress of Woman's Wrongs, the champion of female independence and the authoress of Mistaken Marriages, the great work in which the evils of all alliances not based on a thorough mutual knowledge and esteem are lucidly exhibited and analyzed. So Henry Robinson married, and the bachelors mourned him and had their hair cut and were not comforted until the even. End of section 7